The sacred divine feminine is creative, abundant, flowing, receiving, and disruptive. And the new energy of money, including cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and even the metaverse, is all these things too. Welcome to the Goddess of Crypto, a weekly show where women who are already in this powerful space will cover these topics simply so you can relax into knowing that the future of finance is female. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Goddess of Crypto. I am your host, Hallie Evelyn, and I am here today with my friend, Holly. Now, I shouldn't really necessarily call Holly my friend because this is actually the first time we're truly meeting. However, I've known Holly for months. We are in a group together called the Bitcoin Babes on Telegram. And as you have heard me talk about in the past, Telegram is a really great platform for learning more about Bitcoin and about all things crypto. And there are some really great groups that have sprung up, including some that are for women only, that really are designed to support women getting into the space, learning or just having that camaraderie amongst themselves. And Holly and I met in there. The sacred divine feminine is creative, abundant, flowing, receiving, and disruptive. And the new energy of money, including cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and even the metaverse, is all these things too. Welcome to the Goddess of Crypto, a weekly show where women who are already in this powerful space will cover these topics simply so you can relax into knowing that the future of finance is female. So Holly, welcome to Goddess of Crypto. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thank you very much, Hallie. I'm very, very excited to be here as well. I think it's a touch confusing that our names are so similar, don't you? It's Hallie and Holly. <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> well, it's funny because if I had a Bitcoin for every time I'd been called Holly, I wouldn't need to work ever, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so Holly, why don't you start off telling everybody where you live and what you do inside of the world of crypto? Sure, absolutely. Well, where I live is actually quite a long story. I'm originally English, but I've not lived in England for many, many years. I lived for a long time in Amsterdam. That happens to be where I am now, but I'm actually resident in Portugal. Consider myself quite the citizen of the world, quite the European citizen. I like to move around quite some. Yes, yeah, so I'm main residence in Portugal now. I've spent a bit of time in El Salvador in recent months as well. And I was in the States for the Bitcoin conference, which is a fantastic experience as always. And that's where I live. What do I do in the crypto space? Well, I'd have to kind of pull the reins quite hard there already. I don't consider myself to be in the crypto space at all. I'm what's called a Bitcoin maximalist. So I don't touch any NFTs or any altcoins. I'm only interested in Bitcoin. And so it's funny because you say, like, I'm not in the crypto space, but you are because as a Bitcoin maxi, 
you're like leading the forefront of what's going on in crypto. I mean, Bitcoin was the first thing that kind of created the entire ecosphere of crypto, don't you think? I do. As a Bitcoin maximalist, I would say that that's perhaps, well, one of the very few negative knock-ons of Bitcoin. (laughs) I know that's probably not a very popular opinion amongst your audience, but it is the way I see it. For sure, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. Absolutely. It's one of several thousand cryptocurrencies, but it's definitely the king and will, I think, win out in the, the long term. It's the only cryptocurrency that is truly decentralized. That's the reason for that opinion. And centralization is the enemy of property. That's why I feel so strongly about it. Yes, beautiful. So when Holly says, or when they say in the industry, maximalist or maxi, it basically means Holly is only inside of the Bitcoin universe as far as what she's doing, trading, owning, that she's only interested in Bitcoin and ignoring everything else. And my experience with Bitcoin maxis or maximalists is that they tend to think of even Ethereum as an altcoin. And it's like, so it's Bitcoin here and then there's everything else. Would you agree with that? 100%. Yeah. And so tell us your journey a little bit, because I loved when I first started talking to you, I loved that you were called to the space not from an engineering standpoint, not from a developer standpoint, not because you had this like vision of wanting to create projects to save the world, but rather because of Bitcoin itself. So would you share that journey with people? Yes, of course. It's really my pleasure to. My Bitcoin journey started in about 2016. Well, I started a new relationship in 2016 with a man who was very, very fluent in all things financial, having worked in a bank, been a successful banker. He was very able to talk about and discuss money in a way which I found very accessible and understandable, which was for me quite refreshing and quite a new experience. I think there's a lot of kind of hocus pocus around money, a lot of language used which is almost designed to obfuscate and make things unclear and to pull the wool over our eyes in a way about how our financial system works. It was for me very refreshing to meet and be together with somebody who spoke about money in such a clear way. Um, So he told me first of all about Bitcoin and he said, there's this new cryptocurrency, have you heard of it? And I hadn't. And at that time, as I say, we were just embarking on a new relationship together. We both had children and he said, why don't we go on holiday next year for the first time as a family of six? And I thought that was a great idea. And he asked me, how much money do you usually spend on a holiday for yourself and your daughters? So I told him and we agreed to put that amount into a pot together, that we would both put that amount into a pot in Bitcoin and see where we ended up. It was a nice agreement. We basically said, look, if it ends up being nothing, we'll go camping in France. (laughs) which is like a car ride away. And it goes up a bit. Well, Portugal might be nice. Well, that was the year that Bitcoin really skyrocketed. And we ended up doing this incredible trip. We went on a road trip through California and Arizona. We went to the Grand Canyon. We went to Las Vegas. His kids were quite used to fancy holidays, but my kids just did not know what hit them, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) So I'm definitely one of the ones who came for the games. So I really saw firsthand what happens when you have a deflationary currency. But what I first saw was that the price goes up 
simply number go up technology. I thought, well, this is a scarce asset. And because of that, its value goes up and up as things that are truly scarce do. And I found that a very attractive idea. I'd never thought about money in that sense before. And that was what really gave me a good hard shove down the rabbit hole. And I started really learning about money. And I was just astonished how ignorant I was before that. I mean, I'm actually quite ashamed to look back and say that I got into my 40s. If you had asked me before that, could you explain to me what the gold standard was? I would have had like a vague idea, but I could not have concisely explained to you what the gold standard was, when it was abandoned, what the effect had on our fiat money system. On a personal note, I think the fact that I was previously married to a traditional economist might have had something to do with that. That's really, in a way, the profession of keeping the fiat system in the state that it's in and the study of it. Let's take a second here, though. I want to back up a minute before you move on. And I want to talk about this because this is a show for women, especially. And I know that there are male listeners because there was a lot of interest from men at the Bitcoin conference. They were saying, yes, I want to subscribe to your show too, which I thought was awesome. But I want to talk from the standpoint of a woman. I mean, I do wealth coaching for women when I'm not evangelizing crypto to the world. And what I feel happens a lot is there is a lot of shame, a lot of feeling of why didn't I know about this? Why didn't I understand? And I want to just talk for a second about the gold standard itself. So you probably know that at some point in time, and I'm talking to the audience, not to you, Holly, because I know you know this, there was a time that the dollar was backed by gold. And the gold was contained in Fort Knox. You've heard the expression, if you're an American, more gold than Fort Knox. What happened over time was we began to take that gold out of Fort Knox and spend it on things. And Richard Nixon was the one who decoupled us from the gold standard and said, the dollar will no longer be backed by gold. In fact, the dollar will no longer be backed. And when that happened, which I have the year 1974 in my head, is that correct? What year was it? No, it's not. That happened in 1971. Got it. So three years earlier. So Nixon decoupled us from the gold standard in 1971. That's right. In 1974 was the year that women could now get their own mortgages and credit cards without their husbands or their fathers being involved. That's why that year is locked into my head. So, all right. So 1971, we eliminate the gold standard. And at that point, that allows us to begin printing more money. And we didn't really see this the way that I think we didn't see it as being a terrible thing at the time because we were printing little bits more money, not big bits more money. Um, Holly, what I have heard is that, and what I've been able to get stats on, is that first we printed 30% of all the currency in circulation in the last two years. Then I was able to get stats that said 40%. The signs of the Bitcoin conference said 80%, but I couldn't get a statistic on that. What do you believe is accurate? Right. I don't have an answer to give you on that. I'm afraid I'm not familiar with those statistics. What you're saying raises two very important points for me. You talk about the feelings around this and a sense of shame. I'd like to say directly 
to any of your listeners, be they male or female, young or old out there, and say, if you're feeling that sense of shame right now that you did not have that understanding, let it go. It is not your fault. The information that we have been given about our financial system today is designed to deliberately mislead you. Our financial system as it stands now is built on a double lie. And we'll get to that in a second. And the information surrounding that double lie has been built up and built up and worked upon and woven upon by central bankers, by commercial banks, by traditional economists, by our governments. We've been lied to about the financial system until now. So if you're misinformed about the financial system, it's not your fault. I mean, a small anecdote on that point. After I got divorced, I got a mortgage. And it's incredible to me that women could only get mortgages from 1974. I was born in 1976. That's almost within my lifetime. That is shocking. Well, in the US, not everywhere, but definitely in the United States. And it's still like, you're right, it's shocking and sad. So yes. Bizarre. So I got divorced in 2014 and I got a mortgage. Following that, I reworked my mortgage in order to buy a house. And I took my boyfriend with me to the appointment that I had with the mortgage advisor. And he came out. I remember the two of us were sitting there and he came out, this mortgage advisor, with this big fat folder. And he sat down and he kind of said, right, so I see it as this. The way we're going to structure it, we divide your mortgage into two parts and pay 16%. And you just have to know what's in this big fat folder. Okay. And I was just like, okay. I said to my boyfriend who had worked in a bank, does this sound legit to you? And he was like, yes, this is a good deal. Take it. So I took the deal. And afterwards we came out and I was just feeling, I don't know, weird. I said to him, look, you know, I'm not an intelligent person. I'm very highly educated. I have a PhD. I'm able to take in, retain information besides my academic qualifications, which I don't think particularly mean much really in the real world. I've studied at the University of Life. I consider myself a fairly good communicator in general, but that conversation went totally over my head and I didn't understand what this guy was telling me. And I still signed. And he said, well, basically that's the fiat world and the financial, that's our current banking system in a nutshell. This information, you weren't intended to understand that. That information was designed to pull the wool over your eyes because the system that we're banking with now is based on, on a fake. And to go back to that idea of a double lie. So I studied ancient history. And one of the key parts of my study was actually, perhaps not so coincidentally, coinage. Um, and one of the things that I learned about was how civilizations, I think throughout human history, have valued gold. Right? We've always valued gold as a race, as a species. And it was only around, I'm not sure what, around the medieval times, they started to actually consider paper money. So gold is beautiful and it's nice to hold. It has a special quality, but it's quite difficult to transport. It's heavy. It actually was the Templars that started transferring in the 1100s. You're right. Gold was heavy and was unwieldy. And plus you could be set upon by highwaymen and rob. So they started with IOUs and they actually created the first banks. But the first paper money was created in six or 700 BC 
by the Chinese. I teach this as part of my Crypto Curious program. So I just taught this yesterday. So I know specifically they had this wonderful saying on their paper currency. It said, counterfeiters will be decapitated. So they meant it like, don't get in the way of this. Because of course, it would be very easy to copy the money. So you had to really threaten somebody because you couldn't watermark it at the time. All right, please continue with your story because I love what direction this is going. Go ahead. I believe that the Medici were also quite key in introducing indeed the IOU notes. And I think your point about counterfeiters will be decapitated is a very good one. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Basically, our paper money is based upon a threat. We all have to say, this piece of paper is worth 20 pounds of silver, or it's worth however much it is of gold. And if I don't agree, men with guns are coming for me. Our paper money system is backed up by violence. That's what happens when you have a fiat system. I'm sorry, I'm not being terribly articulate about about this. It's relatively late in the evening for me here in Amsterdam. You can see it getting dark outside my window. But it's also something I feel very passionate about. The problem, of course, with paper money is that it allowed a fractional reserve. And to just try to put in a real nutshell what a fractional reserve is, let's say you, Halle, have a piece of gold and I have a piece of gold. We both put that piece of gold in a bank. The bank will say, yes, we're going to keep your piece of gold for you, but they can give IOUs on those two pieces of gold to as many people as they please. That's the problem with paper money. As soon as it, it was backed by gold, but that backing soon became rather theoretical. As soon as they realized the value of a fractional reserve, they could say they would essentially bet on the fact that you and I and all the other people who has an IOU on those two pieces of gold did not come and pick it up at the same day. In addition, what you were saying before about the mortgage, I know that in the United States, I think just in the last year, they have changed the rules. They used to have multiples so that if you had like $100,000 on reserve, that they could loan out multiples of that $100,000 to loans for other people. But that has changed in the last year to now be, you need to keep the fraction that you need to keep got smaller and smaller, and now it's zero. So our loans from the banks, if I put my $100,000 in the bank, it's no longer like, oh, they can loan 10 times or even 100 times. It's now they can loan as much as they want because that's it's been decoupled. So for all of those reasons, the fractional reserves are like, it's all disappeared, as you said, now kind of theoretical. Exactly. We left the gold standard behind. At a certain point, Nixon, as you said, we both know this is bullshit, so let's just let go of the whole gold standard thing, right? Well, he just basically abandoned that entire system, knowing that there was really very little relation anymore between the actual gold in Fort Knox and the money that was actually circulating. So he decoupled that whole system, which was basically carte blanche to the banks to start printing at will, which is what they did, what they started doing, what they're now continually doing. Even the commercial banks don't have to have the amount of money that they say they have on their books to be able to give those loans, to be able to give you an account and me an account with the same $100 in it. The whole system is totally, totally make-believe. And that, for me, was an incredibly eye-opening journey. And I think it's that learning process is something that I think I've shared with pretty much every Bitcoiner that I have come into contact with in the years. 
what you're sharing is so important because it's interesting because we were talking about shame earlier, but I feel like how can there be any shame when all your education, unless you go into it as a specific field of study, there's zero education for the typical person in any country on basic finances. I mean, when I was a kid, they would teach you how to make stuff in the kitchen or they'd teach you how to make stuff in your wood shop, but they wouldn't teach you how to balance your checkbook or they wouldn't teach you what you needed to understand. I remember somebody trying to explain compound interest to me in five minutes during some math class I had in high school. And I remember thinking, that's going to take really a long time. That feels like it's going to take too long. It wasn't explained in a way that made sense and in a way that I could understand. Perhaps even purposefully. Perhaps it's very cynical of me, but even for people who have taken the time to truly educate themselves on the fiat system, it's only once you realize that the entire construct of the fiat system is a castle in the air that it can really start to crumble and you can actually truly start to think about value. And even I think once that penny drops, an awful lot more pennies start to drop. Like many Bitcoiners, I've also started to question diet and the things that we've been taught about food and what's good for you and what's necessary and what's bad for you. I've started to question the norms around family, around work, around time, government policies around corona. Once you start questioning in this way, you can't stop. My experience with Bitcoin, because I've been in since 2017, but I really wasn't in the community until last year. I didn't even know really there was a community until last year. And so What I saw, though, with Bitcoin was I felt like it came from a very libertarian place as far as the politics, at least, again, in the United States. And the libertarians are sort of this, they're very interested in freedom, freedom from government, and then freedom to just be and exist and be independent, as independent as they would like. But it hasn't been very mainstream as far as what I would consider like the old political system. Like the libertarians to me were always like really far left compared to like really far right people. I mean, a few years later, everything's kind of tossed salad and I don't even know whose politics or what. But what I've seen as Bitcoin has moved more into the mainstream is that it has frustrated some of the people who kind of started with it 10 years ago or even five years ago because it feels like Bitcoin and everything else in crypto is starting to get regulated in a way that is antithetical to why Bitcoin was created in the first place. Would you agree with that? That's fascinating. Different perspective at your end. (laughs) Just processing that information, that's all. I'm processing that. I think that Bitcoin has no politics It has no politics, it has no gender, it has no color, it's true freedom. I think that that idea can create a little friction because the idea of true freedom is, I think, quite new. I think that there are a lot of people who would say Bitcoin brings freedom, but the subtext is it's got to be freedom to do the things that I say you should be doing. I've heard Bitcoin described as a cult before now. Me too. Yes. And I want to be clear to everybody who's listening to this, neither Holly nor I ascribe to any of that idea 
because I think we've both seen how many different kinds of people Bitcoin attracts from the far left to the far right, from born again Christians to atheists. It doesn't matter who you are. And I do think you're absolutely right that Bitcoin is not political. I think it's going to become politicized because I think in this next cycle of elections, we're starting to see people who say their biggest platform for getting elected is making Bitcoin legal tender, which has already started happening in some countries, but it's a very much a polarizing thing. And I think in politics, there's a lot of like, hey, let's keep a lid on this for as long as we can. I think it's Pandora's box and it's been opened and that's just like the way that it is. You can't kill Bitcoin. That seems to be my observation at this point. I couldn't agree more. I think, listen, anybody who is pro-Bitcoin and pro-freedom, I think is a friend of mine and that we see eye to eye on certain basic norms, shall we say. Sometimes I'm a little suspicious of Bitcoin being used in politics I suspect that it would be an easy strike, I don't know, for politicians looking to win votes within a certain population bracket. I don't think Bitcoin isn't political. It's by definition apolitical. It's about personal freedom. I don't yet see a case for large-scale political freedom. I hope that the country, for example, in El Salvador, I hope with all my heart that the population of El Salvador sees greater wealth and greater prosperity, a more long-term thinking, a lower time preference, a better future for young people. I think you already see the seeds of that there. I mean, I know that the introduction in El Salvador has definitely not been without growing pains. I can only see that as a positive, really. That said, I also don't think that Bitcoin needs to be legal tender anywhere. You know, the saying within Bitcoin is that honey badger doesn't care because the Bitcoin animal is supposedly the honey badger because it's so tough, it's so indestructible, it's so battle-hardened, it will get in there and fight a lion and win. And Bitcoin would, and Bitcoin will in the future. The saying is honey badger doesn't care because things happen. For example, China bans Bitcoin or bans Bitcoin mining or whatever. The Bitcoin price blinks and moves on. Elon Musk makes some comments about Bitcoin and Tesla, Bitcoin the environment. Bitcoin blinks, moves on. Even the positives that come to Bitcoin, like it being adopted as legal tender in El Salvador and some movements or noises about progress towards it being adopted elsewhere as well, they're interesting, but I don't think they're crucial to Bitcoin's further development. I really just so appreciate everything that you're saying. So I have two more questions for you. So one is, you said you were in El Salvador recently. I feel like Bitcoin is such a good store of value. It's hard to ask anybody if they're spending it. But you could have spent Bitcoin in El Salvador. Did you have any transactions that involved Bitcoin or did you see Bitcoin being used to transact? Yes. So I did transact in Bitcoin while I was there. I have to say that there are two sides to this for me. First of all, Bitcoin is, as we know, the best savings technology available to humankind at this moment in time. It's just the best, the hardest money in the world. And because of that, it's the best way to keep your store of, you call that store of value. Perhaps your listeners are familiar with this, but there are three really key functions that we require from good money. Store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. Store of value means that your value is not going to rot away or rust away 
keeping it in apples would be no good. They'd rot. Keeping it in iron would be no good. It would rust, right? So good stores of value are things like real estate, which are not going to die over time, gold, which famously does not deteriorate. But Bitcoin is the best store of value currently available to us now. It's really proved its worth as a store of value by skyrocketing in value in the years since it was invented. What it has not yet done is been proven as medium of exchange, unit of account. So it's very, very exciting to visit a country where it has been introduced as legal tender because you see a kind of tipping point in financial history, if I can put it that way. It's the, the shifting point where Bitcoin is becoming not only the perfect store of value, but also a medium of exchange. And, and that's just exciting to witness. And I've got to say that the first time that we went out for lunch, I paid in lightning. Thank you to Jack Mallers for making that possible with Strike. It was a very exciting moment. And I screenshot my first lightning transaction. It's just very exciting to me to be able to support small local businesses. For example, I met a coffee farmer in El Salvador called Jorge. Jorge has a small coffee farm. He grows coffee and he grows cocoa. He has Satoshi blend coffee and it's so, so good. I really like it. And it was wonderful for my second trip there to be able to contact him on Twitter and say, hey, Jorge, I would like to order some of your coffee to be ready for me at my place of accommodation and have him say, yeah, sure. Here's a lightning invoice for the coffee that you want. Scan, done, ching. My payment is made in seconds across continents without any third party a bank being involved. Transaction completed, coffee taken to my accommodation. And it was wonderful. I definitely recommend it to all of your listeners. Oh, that's awesome. So if anybody isn't familiar with this, Lightning Network is on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, and it is designed to be able to allow transactions that are what's called peer-to-peer, -peer, which, as Holly was just describing, means that she and Jorge can have a transaction without involving the bank or anyone else. So that's fantastic. Thank you for that. I have one more question for you. I really so appreciate all of the value that you've provided to everybody and how much incredible, great information and how you've explained it in what I always say, plain English. It needs to be plain English. And you did. I'm so pleased. But I just want to ask, as women listening to this show who haven't necessarily gotten into Bitcoin or crypto at all, or they're just scared and they're brand new to this, but they're hearing the word crypto, they're hearing the word Bitcoin, and they're wondering, what do you suggest to them? What do you have to say to them? I'd say there are several very important messages. And I'm talking to you now as a Bitcoin maximalist. First, I would say, cut out the white noise. Do not involve yourself in cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin. Some are out-and-out -out scams. All others are centralized in some form. If you're thinking about making an investment into cryptocurrency, make certain that it's Bitcoin and Bitcoin, Bitcoin, not Bitcoin Cash or any of the other... Derivatives. Derivatives, exactly. Good word. <laughs> don't go down that path and don't be scared of the price now. I mean, that is another really key message. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. I know people who have that on t-shirts. People come to me now and they say, yeah, 
I know you told me about it four years ago and then it was this price, but now it's like $40,000 and who has $40,000 lying around? You don't have to do that. You can buy $10 worth of Bitcoin. There are also services, very, very good services. In Europe, I would recommend Bitter. I know Swan also does it. I believe that a German bank called Nuri also does it, where you can set up a standing order with them to simply buy Bitcoin for you. So you give them $10 every month, they buy $10 worth of Bitcoin for you and put it onto your account. The last thing that I would say, you'll hear a lot of stories about custody. I don't know if perhaps I should clarify a little bit. So when you buy Bitcoin, you buy it on an exchange. Exchanges can be vulnerable to hacks. So those exchanges are connected to the internet. If you buy your Bitcoin on an exchange, a good reputable exchange, I do recommend Bitstamp. That's pretty good. Oh, there's my cat. He might come and say hi. His name's Satoshi, actually, after the inventor of Bitcoin. Yeah, if you buy your Bitcoin, you'll put it on an exchange. A reputable exchange is relatively safe. At a certain point, you might want to get your Bitcoin off an exchange. We usually recommend that you do that if your Bitcoin is around the value that you might pay for a secondhand car. So once you start thinking of, oh, this is actually a fair amount of money, take it off an exchange. You'll need a hardware wallet to do that. There's all kinds of hardware wallets out there on the market. Have a good look at it, research it, do your homework. But once you've got that Bitcoin and it's really in your custody, it's really yours. That's true financial freedom. So thank you, Holly. That has been incredibly helpful. And I know you can buy Bitcoin in this country using Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. I mean, it's really like gotten to the point where it's everywhere. But I appreciate you giving people those instructions. As always, everyone, please remember, do your own research. We are not here to offer you financial advice. We are here to offer you an education. And Holly, you've done an amazing job with that. I'm so grateful that you came on Goddess of Crypto as my guest. If you enjoyed this episode of Goddess of Crypto, please subscribe. We are on 17 platforms and YouTube. And please like this episode, share this episode, comment on this episode. However, especially share this episode. I would like every woman on the planet to help empower herself around money and around the future of money, the new energy of money, as I call it. Holly, thank you again. Blessings to you all. And I will see you next time. Thank you so much, Hale, for the opportunity to come on your show. Thank you. All right. See you next time on Goddess of Crypto. Every week, transformational wealth coach Hallie Evelyn leads a conversation that helps to ensure that women everywhere can learn to surf the coming tsunami of the new energy of money. You can find her at goddessofcrypto.me. That's goddessofcrypto.me. Be sure to subscribe to Goddess of Crypto on your favorite platform or watch the show on YouTube. And remember, wealth isn't just your privilege, it's your right. Every week, transformational wealth coach Hallie Evelyn leads a conversation 
that helps to ensure that women everywhere can learn to surf the coming tsunami of the new energy of money. You can find her at goddessofcrypto.me. That's goddessofcrypto.me. Be sure to subscribe to Goddess of Crypto on your favorite platform or watch the show on YouTube. And remember, wealth isn't just your privilege, it's your right.